Raising Joyful Children in an Angry World, a podcast dedicated to faithful parents navigating their families through a stormy culture. That's not fair. Oh, that has to be a top 10 phrase of children growing up. It's not fair that my older brother got to do this. It's not fair that the neighbors are allowing their kids to do something that we're not allowed to do. Welcome back to Raising Joyful Children in an Angry World. I'm your host, Paul Osborne. Today, I want to look at the culture of fairness versus the kingdom of fullness. Now, typically, when our kids start into this phrase, and it starts pretty young, we take two approaches to it. Now, the first is to say, life is not fair. And the second, oh, we referee, defend, negotiate, explain why these feelings of unfairness must be dealt with, and we try to figure out how to manage them. But both of them are missing a critical component of a Christian worldview, as they are relying on reason alone. Now, first, I want to say, we're not talking about learning good manners, learning to take your turn, to share something, but what we're really talking about here is envy and jealousy, and the complaining that comes out of those. First, when we take the approach that, well, life isn't fair, and that we will never have the same amounts, and we shouldn't expect it, and while this is true, the problem with this as a standalone belief of contentment based on reluctant acceptance of the world's ways misses God's plan in the, in the assessment of our kingdom reality. When we are focusing on the fairness of the kingdom of man without pointing our children to God's kingdom of fullness, we get tangled up in the weeds of fairness instead of fullness, and this can become a problem for them in not really having a full view of the kingdom of God. The other approach is what I call the behavioralist approach. I have read and reread uh, Dr. Brene Brown's book, Atlas to the Heart. And there's an interesting chapter called The Places We Go When We Compare. Now, Brown starts off with a picture on her desk of a swimmer focusing on the lane that, the swim, that she's swimming in and not looking at the swimmer next to you. If you've ever swam, even just laps, it's almost impossible to resist comparing where you're going, how fast you're going to the person next to you in the other lane. And while she does not call it a sin nature, she begins to admit we really can't help comparing ourselves to other people. And of course, in this culture, this constant comparison, it starts so early. Are you in the advanced class in kindergarten, or are you not in that class? Are you on the A team or the B team? Are you first chair in the orchestra at, in, in middle school? Did you get the lead role? It just goes on and on from our clothing to where we go, what we do. We're in a constant state of comparison. And Dr. Brown's approach and her and the behavioralist approach is, is to brilliantly describe what's the difference between envy and jealousy, jealousy being fear of losing what you have to someone else, where envy is desiring what someone else has and not even wanting them to have it. And the behavioralist describes the flaws, and while admitting it's part of human nature, begins to suggest that self-awareness and then surrounding ourselves with the right kinds of friend groups or admiring the right sorts of people can help us manage 
this bend towards comparing and complaining. Her advice to her kids, she says in, in the book, is to have friends that don't want to blow out your candle and you don't be the friend that wants to blow out their candle. It's almost a description of, of a humanistic kind of church with an admission of a flaw or sin and then a community of like-mindedness. But it's a veneration of humanity instead of Jesus. And this is where this behavioral science begins to trip, in my view, because what we're looking at is the heart. And when you're pointing the heart towards the mirror of humanity and expecting broken humanity to fix itself, I think you're going to find out that it doesn't work. In fact, even the human behavioralists are beginning to experiment with these mushroom drugs. If you're not familiar with this, I'm not talking about somebody in the woods, uh, northwestern part of the United States, but this is in the Mayo Clinic and NYU and other high-end research, medical research facilities that are suggesting that these drugs do something in the brain to give them a new worldview, almost a spiritual experience, some of them would say. It's interesting, Kenneth Graham's children's story, Wind in the Willows, which came out in 1905, really kind of puts this in perspective. Now, there are four friends. There's Mole, Rat, Badger, and Toad. And Mole and Rat and Badger devise an intervention for Toad, who's the wealthy son of an aristocrat. And Toad has developed an adrenaline addiction. He's discovered motor cars and their speed, and he, he's just caught up in it, and he's recklessly driving them. He's wrecking the cars. And he's becoming a danger both to himself and to the community. And so they send him to his room. And then eventually wise old Badger, who is a friend of Toad's father, takes Toad from his room down to the library in Toad Hall where he lives. And after some time, Badger and Toad come out of the library and they announce to Mole and Rat, Toad has seen the error of his ways. He is going to change his behavior. Isn't that right, Toad? Says Badger. And Toad replies, oh, yes. And then he points to the library and he says, in there, it all made sense. But out here, he smiles. Beep, beep, vroom, vroom. And he runs out the door of Toad Hall searching for another motor car. And Blaine Pascal said it this way, the heart knoweth reasons that reason knows nothing of. The Christian worldview is not to reject reason, but to recognize its limitations. Sure, you can explain the temptation to compare, and you can explain the way the world works, but self-awareness and, and a better friend group won't do the heart work and the soul work that needs to be done. First, the wisdom our kids need is fullness. They need to see fullness in the kingdom of heaven and not be focused on fairness defined by humanity or ourselves or our scales of equality that we manage with some self-installed self ration regulator. We have to help them discover the fullness that God has created and given us. It's fullness, not fairness. We don't want a reluctant reasonableness. What we are searching for is rejoiceful recognition of God's generosity, abundance, and brilliance. You go back to when Eve took the forbidden fruit and she shifts the focus of her heart, the eyes of her heart, we might say, 
from the fullness of the garden to the fairness presented by the deceiver. Creation itself testifies to God's fullness. We can demonstrate this on two, two trips. The beach cannot offer what the mountains offer, and the mountains cannot offer what the beach offers, and yet God gives us both. They both are enjoyable and offer different things for us to enjoy in our travels. Uh, Paul says in his spiritual gift sermon that the, the eye cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. And our kids need to see that God builds a kingdom in which we all benefit from different talents and skills and gifts. So step one, Isaiah would say, is stop trusting in humanity and yourself and start trusting in God. You have to warn our kids that their cultural obsession with fairness, particularly in this time, has really forgotten what that looks like in the kingdom of man when it's tried. We used to have Chairman Mao in China where everyone wore the same clothes, everyone ate the same food, and you pretty much participated in the things that everyone does. Society was brought down to the lowest common denominator under the idea or the concept that this is now all fair. We are seeing these ideas rebranded as social justice, not towards widows or orphans, as the Bible would describe, where we need an extra dose of kindness and where injustice is taking place and where we're supposed to be helpful to people that have lost part of their family or have no family. But we're seeing this uh, Maoism rebranded as identity groups, and people are lighting these fires of anger in order to gain power, in order to pr promote themselves and, and actually gain wealth from them. And once it's lit, it becomes destructive to the people that are caught up in it. And so I think we have to warn our kids that the world is trying to convince them of something that is not only not desirable or possible, but it is also destructive. One of the great Bible stories that teaches this is called the Rebellion of Korah, in Numbers 16. Korah is a Levite priest. He's given a special place as a priest because he's a Levite, and he has what we might call a congregation with several other Levite priests. But instead of being grateful for what God has given him, he wants what Moses and Aaron's roles are. And so he starts to claim, hey, I'm the one that's holy here, and you're the selfish, self-centered leaders. You're only in this for yourself. Right, is the typical, whatever you're accusing somebody else of is usually what you're guilty of. And so in his ingratitude and envy, he actually gains a, a, a group of people, about 250 followers. And he goes to Moses and says, we're, we're not putting up with you. So Moses goes to prayer. And God sees this not as an insult towards Moses and Aaron, but as ingratitude and rebellion towards him causes an earthquake, Korah and his followers fall into it, and the wrath of God comes down on them. See, this kind of attitude, when it goes unchecked, it ends in destruction. This is why the scriptures tell us to seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be granted unto you. That's a message of fullness, and the things that really matter are what are granted. We have to have a gratitude and in that, we are going to discover our joy.
Seeking the world's ever-changing standards of fairness is going to bring misery, rebellion, and destruction. And so the goal is to try and direct the eyes of our kids' hearts towards God, not into a mirror framed in human wisdom. We can use reason that comes from the Scripture, but when we try to go human reason on a standalone basis, we're going to be right back to, that's not fair. Our response is simple once we have explained the difference between fullness and fairness. Do you want God's fullness or do you want human fairness? If, if you want human fairness, then we have to reconsider our vacation plans because it wouldn't be fair if we went somewhere and everybody else in the neighborhood or the family didn't go. If you want fairness, then we have to consider that if not everybody's on the sports team you're on, maybe it's not fair that you're on it. These are the kinds of things I think fit into this discussion. I want to say this, and as we try to wrap this up, that the greatest issue in understanding how we deal with the flaws of sin is, is understanding that the heart is something that only God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus can do the repair work and the soul work that our kids are in need of. When you say you desire uh, your kids to have friends that won't crush their dreams, as, as Dr. Brown says, won't blow out their candle. Only God can give those kinds of friendships, and only God can make us, through heart work and soul work, that kind of friend. And the only person that we can really venerate and, and admire as a role model is Jesus. It's a long path in these, these complaints and these discussions of it's not fair. It is exhausting. And we, we sometimes feel like the Israelites, walking a long way to get to the promised land. But we can't give up on God working inside our kids, praying for their hearts, and letting his word and his sacraments benefit your family, getting them into the kingdom of fullness instead of the culture of fairness. The ultimate battle for the heart and soul is a fight for identity. Our King invites our kids to know who they are, what to believe, and where they belong. Until next time, let's remember the words, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.